morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. A physician was driving his four-year-old to daycare. His stethoscope was laying on the seat and his son picked it up. Thinking how wonderful my son wants to follow in my footsteps and be a doctor, he said to his son, do you know what to do with that? His son said, sure. He began to speak into the stethoscope and said, welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? If I asked you today what you want for your kids, I bet I would get a couple answers at the top of your list. Number one would be, I want them to be successful. That's why you invest in their education. That's why when they show a propensity for sports or music or dance or whatever, you Get them the training and the experience because you want them to be successful. And we usually define success as a good job with a lot of money that makes them secure. The other word I bet I would hear would be I want them to be safe. That's why when they go into any kind of uh, sport or whatever, we get them the best equipment and the right helmet and mouthpiece and everything and try to get them to be safe. Several years ago when uh, airbags first came out, they first came out just on the driver's side. I remember talking to a lady in our church and she said, I'm going to have to buy a new car. I said, well, why? She said, because I have an airbag just on the driver's side and I want to get the dual airbags because I'm worried about my kids. It was everything I could do not to tell her, I don't even have an airbag. I don't know if that was an excuse to buy a new car or she was really concerned about her kids, but we put safety first many times. I grew up with the idiom, better safe than sorry, ringing in my ear. It was always, be careful, watch out, look both ways. And if you will listen carefully to our prayer meetings a lot of times, what is up at the top of our prayer list? Safety. My kids are traveling this weekend. Let's pray that they would be safe. We got a trip coming up. Pray that we would be safe. Safe, safe, safe. I couldn't help thinking as I was reflecting on our passage this morning. Couldn't help thinking about what God wants for his kids. Is his priority success, and safety. And what is success in God's eyes? It's very different than ours. Does God live by the idiom better safe than sorry? Is it ever God's will that you would not be safe? Is it ever God's will that you would be in danger Is it ever God's will that you would suffer harm? And if you don't have a ready answer to those questions, I advise you to read the end of Hebrews chapter 11, where it says that some by faith were sawn in two and killed with the sword. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus intercedes for us in heaven. That's a big word that means he prays for us. Jesus is in heaven right now praying for you. I wonder where safety falls on his prayer list. If you were riding along with your heavenly father, or to make the analogy better, let's say you're riding along with Jesus, and you pick up the cross, and he thinks, how wonderful. He, she is going to follow in my footsteps. What do you do with the cross? Do you gold-plate it and put it on a building? Do you admire it and say all kinds of platitudes about it and spiritualize it and leave it laying there? Do you watch him and applaud him and thank him for all that he did on the cross and then spend your life seeking safety first? Or do you deny yourself and put the cross on your back and follow him. I would challenge you with the concept that that is what Jesus considers success. And that's not very safe. Today we're going to get an up-close-and-personal glimpse into the life of arguably the most prominent Christ follower of all time. And as we do, I want to ask you three questions relative to your safety. First question, are you too safe with your words? We live in the day of political correctness We live in the day when we're told that you should never question anyone's religious beliefs. We live in the day when you are told that you should never criticize anyone's moral choices. If you do, you could lose your job. You could lose your reputation. It's not safe. If your friend is out of line, the proper etiquette is just smile and nod and keep the peace. We live in the day when tolerance always trumps truth. So I want us to look at Paul and see if he lived by that same motto. The Corinthian church is being bombarded by deception and lies. The politically correct thing for Paul to do would be to stand by in silence. But instead, he's going to set the record straight. And that's what he does in chapter 11. He pulls the curtain on the false teachers, and then he pulls the curtain on his own life. He says, here's who they really are, and here's who I really am. It reminds me that there are times when a servant of Christ has to confront his opposition. There are times when the servant of Christ has to oppose Christ's opposition. There are times when you have to make a whip and run the money changers out of the temple. And that's what Paul does in this chapter. He takes his gloves off and he gets his knuckles bloody. His goal is not diplomacy. 
His goal is to lay out the raw truth. And we saw that in verses 13 to 15 in this chapter. Paul told us there that Satan's greatest ploy is the use of counterfeit. He uses a counterfeit messenger with a counterfeit message. Satan never comes as Satan. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And so Paul here points at these false teachers and he says, they call themselves apostles of Christ. They call themselves servants of righteousness, but they're not. They are false apostles and deceitful workers. They are not doing the work of God. They are doing the work of the devil. Now that's not politically correct. And having pulled the curtain on the false teachers, Paul is about to pull the curtain on his own life. But before he does so, he bridges it in verses 16 and 21 to 21 with an introduction. Notice verse 16. Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. Paul says, I hope you won't see me as foolish, but if you do, I'm fine with that as long as you listen to what I have to say. Now, why does Paul call himself foolish? Well, because he's about to use the technique that the false teachers have perfected, and that is boasting. Paul Paul spent his life very careful about what he bragged about. In fact, he told us in Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was very careful to only boast about Christ and his cross, but here he's going to do a little boasting about himself, and it sounds very uncomfortable to him and distasteful to him and even foolish to him. But he says, since the truth is at stake, I'm going to do it. Then look at verse 17. What I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, But as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. Christ never boasted. That was not his posture. And Paul says, neither should his disciples, but since foolishness seems to be all you will hear, I'm going to speak your language. Since you seem to be so tuned in to boasting, I'm going to get on your wavelength. The false teachers came to Corinth They were bragging about their lineage and their talents and their abilities and their gifts. And these Corinthians listened to them readily. And so Paul says, you seem to respond to boasting, so I'm going to give you boasting. And then verse 19, for you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. I love sarcasm, so I'm glad it's in the Bible. Corinthians prided themselves in being wise, and Paul says, you're so wise that I have to speak to you in foolishness so you'll understand. Paul said a similar thing in the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 3. He said, you're men of flesh, you are babes spiritually, and I have to give you milk and not meat because you're still fleshly. Remember that? 
And then he described what their problem was, and that was they were having strife between individuals in the body, and they were attaching themselves to men, to teachers. I have Paul, I have Apollos, I have Peter. Now they're doing the same thing, only they're not attaching themselves to Christian teachers, they're attaching themselves to false teachers. And we see the proof of that in verse 20. Paul says, for you tolerate it. If anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. These false teachers came to Corinth as macho teachers. He said they enslave you, they exalt themselves, and they hit you in the face. Very opposite of a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ does what he serves. These men came exalting themselves and overpowering and enslaving the people. He says they devour you. Same word used in 1 Peter 5.8 where it says the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And they take advantage of you. Paul has just said back earlier in this chapter in verse 9, he didn't take any money from the Corinthians because he wanted to uh, be free from the criticism that he was doing it for his own gain. These men come in and take advantage of you, Paul says, and you respond readily to them. And so he says in verse 21, to my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison. If that's your measure of strength, then we've been weak. If these are the credentials for an apostle, Paul says, I've been a wimp. And then he continues on in verse 21 to say it this way. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. You want bold? I'm going to give you bold. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time when you were bold enough to tell someone what they needed to hear? When is the last time you told someone the truth in love? You say, well, I can't do that. They might punch me. They might ostracize me. They might give me the cold shoulder. Well, if a doctor was prescribing medicine to your loved one that was lethal, would you speak up? I think you would. Paul tells us Satan and his false teachers are prescribing something that is not only physically lethal, it is eternally lethal. And we need to be bold enough to speak up. When's the last time you said to a friend or a relative, call me a fool if you like, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not concerned about my reputation. I'm not concerned about what you think about me. If you think I'm a fool, I'm fine with that, but I'm going to tell you the truth. 
Next week is Impact Sunday. I can be bold and invite somebody. Maybe they'll come to know the Lord and it'll change their life eternally. Or I can be politically correct and tolerant and silent and safe. Are you too safe with your words? What does it take for you to speak up? Second question. Are you too safe with your actions? And we see that in verses 22 to 27. Paul's going to do a little bragging here. He's going to catalog his credentials and his experiences And as we go through this list, I want you to check out and see if he plays it safe. He starts out by countering the boasting of the false teachers about their lineage. Notice verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Now the term Hebrew was used as a badge of honor among the Jewish people. It was an admired distinction Most of the Jews were scattered outside of Palestine and they spoke only Greek. They were referred to as the Hellenistic Jews. The Jews who retained the ability to speak the Hebrew language were referred to by this badge of honor. They were called Hebrews. You remember in Acts chapter 6, a complaint arose among the Hellenistic Jews. The Jews who only spoke Greek and not Hebrew because their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And who was getting the food? The Hebrew widows, because they were more honored by the Jewish community. When Paul gave his defense before the crowds in Jerusalem in Acts 22, here's what we read in verse 2. It says, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. Paul's standing up against a hostile crowd, and he begins to speak in Hebrew, and they go, wow. This guy's a Hebrew. He called himself, in Philippians 3, 5, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So Paul says, you want me to brag? I'm a Hebrew. Secondly, are they Israelites? So am I. Now he's talking about his nationality. They were Israelites. Paul says, I'm an Israelite as well. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. And again, that goes back to the promise, the one whom God had promised his unconditional covenant. Paul says, these false teachers boast about their lineage. I can stand right up next to them. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am an Israelite. I am a Hebrew. I am a child of promise of the privileged nation speaking the native language. I'm orthodox. And then he switches to ministry in the next verse. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if in saying, I more so. Are they servants of Christ? I more so. And then he's going to defend that. Now, how do you defend being a more so servant of Christ? How do I defend the fact? I say, well, I'm a, I'm a, 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 a servant of Christ, a minister of Christ, and I'm more so than somebody else. How do I defend that? Do I defend it by saying, 
I drive a bigger car? Do I defend it by saying I have health and wealth and prosperity? Do I defend it, do I defend it by saying I am safe and secure and he's not? Notice how Paul does so. Look at verse 23. He says, in far more labors. He had said the same thing humbly in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He said, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He had gone tirelessly from city to city, from country to country, from continent to continent, preaching the gospel. Paul could say that no one excelled him in time spent, in places visited, in multitudes preached to. And then he says, in far more imprisonments. There are four imprisonments of Paul recorded in Scripture. In fact, there's the ruins of a tower still, that you can still see in the city of Ephesus known as Paul's prison. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1 indicates that that's right around the time Paul wrote this letter that he was in, that prison in Ephesus. Clement of Rome, writing in AD 96, says that Paul was in prison seven times. We can't be sure, but what we do know from this verse, is that he was imprisoned more than any other preacher of his day. In fact, if you calculate it out, Paul spent at least five years of his life in confinement. Look again at verse 23. He says, beaten times without number, or literally in stripes more abundantly. It reminds me that when the Lord Jesus called Paul in Acts 9.16, he told Ananias, he is a chosen instrument of mine, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Next phrase says, often in danger of death. When Paul began this book in 2 Corinthians 1.9, he related a recent occasion when he says we had the sentence of death within ourselves. That was not a unique situation for Paul. That was something that happened, here he says, often. 2 Corinthians 4.11, Paul says, we are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. In 1 Corinthians 15.30, he says, we are in danger every hour. And in the next verse, he says, I die daily. I can't help reading this passage and thinking, you know, I've been in ministry for 30 years. And when I look at Paul's life, I realize I'm in kindergarten. I, can't e I don't know how to finish the statement, I am often in danger of. I can't even think of anything. He says, I am often in danger of death. Look at verse 24. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 
lashes. That was the maximum number of times that a Jewish judge could order a guilty man to be beaten. Deuteronomy 25.3 says he may beat him 40 times, but no more. And to avoid exceeding this number, the Jews later shortened it to 39 times. And Paul remembers exactly how many times he was beaten. 39 times, I think you would too. He says it was five. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. The 39 lashes came from the Jews. The rods would come from the Romans. And if you'll notice, he doesn't tell us how many times they hit him. Because the Romans didn't set any limit. In fact, let me show you a verse. If you go to Acts chapter 16... Acts chapter 16 and verse 22. It says, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison. How many times did they hit them? Many times. They just kept hitting them. If you got a soldier on a bad day, He just kept going. In fact, Paul might have been beaten many more times, except that he often used the fact that he was a Roman citizen to keep himself from being beaten. He did that in Acts chapter 22. In fact, it says there in verse 24 that they arrested Paul and they were going to examine him by scourging. Interesting way of interrogation. He's going to beat the guy until he talks. And before they could, Paul said, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they refrained from beating him. But three times he was beaten by the Romans. He says, once I was stoned. I would say that's enough. People didn't get stoned twice because stoning killed you. Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, says the place where criminals were were stoned was an 11-foot deep hole. The first witness would throw him in. If he had not died by the fall, the second witness would throw a large stone on his heart as he lay. And if not yet lifeless, the whole people would stone him. In Arab countries today, they bury the individual up to his waist in the ground so he can't dodge the rocks. And then they stone him to death. You ever been hit by a rock? I think you remember it. These people really through these rocks. That's why in Acts chapter 7, in verse 58, you remember when they stoned Stephen to death? It says they laid their robes at Saul's feet. Why did they take their coats off? So they could wind up and really throw the rocks at Stephen. Paul was stoned. It's recorded 
in Acts chapter 14. They pummeled him with rocks till his body was lifeless. And then they drug him out of the city thinking he was dead. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. That was not an uncommon occurrence on the Mediterranean in those days. Only one of Paul's shipwrecks is recorded for us, and that's in Acts 27, 41, on his final voyage to Rome. But what's interesting is that hadn't even happened yet when Paul wrote this. So he had three other shipwrecks that we're not told about. He says, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. The deep is a reference to the sea. He doesn't mean under the sea. He means out at sea. On one of those shipwrecks, he actually spent 24 hours clinging to a raft or pieces of the vessel in the open sea. Verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys, which is the introduction to what he has to say next because he catalogs the various dangers that he encountered. He says, in dangers from rivers... We don't think much about rivers because we have bridges over them. They didn't have bridges in that day. They didn't have ferry boats in that day. Rivers were often swollen with floods and difficult to go across. I've, I've done a lot of whitewater canoeing in my day. There's nothing more dangerous than a river if you're going to try to cross it. He says, dangers from robbers. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? man went from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was in He was jumped by robbers. That was a normal thing in that day. Can you imagine being out on a deserted road, miles from the nearest town, and you come on some shady individuals? They could easily rob you, cut your throat, bury you in a shallow grave, and no one would know. There were no helicopters, no search dogs. No forensic experts. Danger from robbers. Dangers from my countrymen. In Acts 9, Paul tells us the Jews plotted together to do away with him. In Acts 20, there was another plot to kill him. In Acts 20, 19, he says, I encountered the trials which came upon me from the plots of the Jews. In Acts 23, over 40 men said, we will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. Dangers from the Gentiles. Acts 14 tells us that in the city of Iconium, the Gentiles plotted to stone him, and he found out about it and fled the city. In Acts 19, Paul's preaching was ruining the idol-making business in Ephesus. And so a guy by the name of Demetrius, a silversmith, incited a riot against him. Dangers in the city... He encountered mobs at Damascus, Ephesus, Jerusalem. Dangers in the wilderness. Paul didn't always travel on the frequented highways. He many times found himself himself miles from the nearest road at the mercy of the weather, at the mercy of wild beasts. In fact, he was bitten by a snake in Acts 28. Dangers on the sea. A ship didn't have to wreck put its passengers in peril. Storms and waves could wash you off the deck. The wind could drive the ship away from its direction and it could run out of food and they could die. Lightning could strike you. 
And then he says, dangers among false brethren, which is the most treacherous of all. There has not been a time in the history of the church when it has been free from this danger from within. There was a Judas among the original apostles, and there have been traitors in the camp ever since. This is what Paul is facing as he writes this with the church at Corinth. Wolves in sheep's clothing. After going through this list, if you think God's priority for you is safety, I would challenge you to look at this verse 26 again and circle the word dangers. I count eight times. Dangers, 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 dangers. Verse 27. I have been in labor and hardship. The word labor means to toil to the point of fatigue. The word hardship means to toil involving painful effort. And so these two words together involves how much work he was doing and it brought him to the point of fatigue and pain. Paul often used these two words together. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he said, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He worked night and day. He preached by day. He made tents by night. Which explains the next hardship. Through many sleepless nights. Paul missed a lot of sleep. In Acts 20, 31, he says, Night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And then he says, In hunger and thirst, often without food. Paul did that sometimes voluntarily. He would fast. We read about that in Acts chapter 13. Other times, it was involuntary. It was forced upon him by the circumstance that he didn't have any food. Biggest problem traveling preachers have today is not gaining too much weight. Everybody feeds them so much. Paul was the originator of the traveling preacher. He says, I was often without food. And then he adds, in cold and exposure. You know, we hear a lot today about homeless people. Paul could relate. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, he said, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated, and are homeless. What a list of hardships. I had a debate this week with someone about whether God promised us prosperity. That's not the question. The question is, Am I pursuing my prosperity over God's purpose? 
The question is, am I choosing safety over service? The question is, am I willing to go into the danger zone? I've been to a few SEMO football games, and uh, I've gone with Stuart and, and get to stand on the sideline, kind of have a privileged pass, and, and, and it's kind of cool to be on the sideline. You know, you got the best view of the game. Uh, I can kind of high-five the players and kind of be part of the camaraderie on the sideline. But the reality is, I'm not going in the game. You know, I got on loafers, and I'm eating a hot dog. When I think about that scene, I'm often convicted that sometimes in the spiritual arena, I'm satisfied to stand on the sidelines in my loafers and eat my hot dog and watch other people like Paul suffer for the sake of the gospel. And I never enter the game. And why don't I do that? Because I'm too safe with my actions. Let me ask you a third question. Are you too safe with your heart? Look at verse 28. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. The external things came and went But there was something Paul dealt with daily that was heavier to bear. It never went away. What was it? It was the inner pressures and concerns over people. This is the price associated with having a caring heart. This is the price associated with having a shepherd's heart. This was the cost for Paul having a genuine concern for people. Remember what he said back in verse 2 of this chapter? I have a godly jealousy for you. This was the pressure of knowing that he was going to be accountable for those people, according to Hebrews 13, 17. You see, Paul didn't go to a place and minister and leave and just forget about the people. He carried them in his heart. He spent sleepless nights concerned over the sheep. When someone hurt, Paul hurt with them. Look what he says in verse 29. Who is weak without my being weak? When he talks about weak here, he's probably not talking about it in the sense of being weak in faith as we find it used in Romans 14 because he uses the same term in the next chapter chapter 12 and verse 10, to talk about physical affliction. And so Paul is saying, who gets physically afflicted and I don't feel the pain? And then he switches to another side of it. He says, the rest of verse 29, who is led into sin without my intense concern? Physical affliction, now it's spiritual affliction. Who falls into sin? And literally what he says, who falls into sin and I don't burn? That word burn 
is the word used in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, where it says, better to marry than to burn. Somebody's engaged and they're trying to make it to the wedding. They're burning. Paul says, you're better to marry than to burn because you're consumed with passion. Well, Paul says, when somebody falls spiritually, I am consumed with emotion. I am consumed with pain. You know, I'm convinced that the greatest joys in life and the deepest heartaches in life are experienced in ministry. John said in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And here Paul reflects the painful side of that, the daily pressure of concern, the deep heartache over those who are not walking in the truth. So let me give you a tip. If you want to play it safe, don't care about people. If you want to play it safe, don't put your heart and soul into ministry. If you want to play it safe, don't pour your life into people. Stay detached. But I'll tell you this, if you do that, you will never experience the greatest joy in life. Are you living by the idiom, better safe than sorry? I just want to tell you, it doesn't hold true in God's economy. God calls you to step into dangerous territory with your words, with your actions, and with your heart. And when you do, you will never be sorry. Shouldn't surprise us that it's a dangerous thing to follow Jesus because where did Jesus' steps lead him? To the cross. We're going to complete our service today by taking the bread and the cup, reminding us of the cross. I would challenge you to prepare your hearts today as you come. And as you come to the table and take the bread and the cup representing the cross of Christ, I have to think that Jesus is thinking, how wonderful. They're going to follow in my footsteps. And so as you come, I challenge you with that question. Will you follow in his footsteps with your words and your actions and your heart? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross where Jesus suffered and died in our place. And Father, we confess to you so often we want to celebrate the cross as something that you did and not enter into that ourselves. We also realize that you've challenged each of us to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow you. So today as we come and remember the cross, we do celebrate that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves, but we also 
pray that you would challenge us to realize that following you is to follow in blood-splattered footprints. And Father, we pray that we would be willing to follow all the way to the cross, surrender our own lives, and pay whatever price it takes to fulfill your purpose in our lives here. We thank you for that privilege in Jesus' name.